On the show today, Rich and I talk about Bobby Flay's exit from the Food Network, Scotch versus Bourbon. Is there a place in this world for alternative milks? And much, much more. I'm your host, Brad Jackson, and you're listening to the November 10th, 2021 inaugural edition of Coffee and Koshan. There was some big news in the food world recently. Food Network announced that Bobby Flay, who is the center of their network, part of practically every show they have on, is going to be leaving the network after 27 years. Um, Bobby Flay is someone who I think people have strong reactions to one way or the other. Um, But despite what you may think about Bobby Flay, or what listeners may think about Bobby Flay, you got to admit the guy is successful. He's the king of a restaurant empire. Um, Of course, some of which got hit by uh, COVID, but but what restaurant didn't? Um, He's been part of a host of successful shows on their network, Boy Meets Grill, Brunch at Bobby Flay's, uh, Throwdown with Bobby Flay, Iron Chef America. The one that's running now, uh, which is about to end, is Beat Bobby Flay, which my daughter is a huge fan of. He's written uh, 15 cookbooks, He did a travel show about Rome with Giada that was the centerpiece of the launch of Discovery Plus uh, recently. And he's really helped sort of um, kick off a lot of their next Food Network stars uh, in the last several years as well. Um, When you think about Bobby Flay, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Uh, you, food, Food Network. I mean, like you said, the guy is the centerpiece of everything. He's he's worked with kids. He's worked with adults. Uh, you know, he is the guy. Where do they go from here? That's a good question. Where do they go from here? Because if you look at the history of the Food Network, Food Network was really launched by Emeril Lagasse, someone who they have long forgotten about at this point. But Food Network would not be Food Network without Emeril. I mean, he's someone who is just a staple at that network. Um, And Bobby Flay came quickly thereafter. Um, That show Boy Meets Grill, uh, which was a play on Boy Meets Girl, um, won a whole bunch of Emmys. um, And it was what really kicked off his career. He then really made a uh, career out of competing with people in food. He was really one of the first people who, who did that on a regular basis. And if you look at his, uh, his body of work, a, a good chunk of what runs on that network is Bobby Flay. So I'm going to be interested to see how they pivot from this um, and who they sort of bring up as the next big star because he's, he's a guy who's just all over that place. Just night or day, you turn on that network – it's likely to be Bobby Flay. Yes, that that's just it. And he had to have been a huge moneymaker for him. And he did ask for a very large contract for the the new one, which is where everything Supposedly stalled. Supposedly $100 million, yeah. Yes, but you would think they would easily recoup that money just from the amount of advertising and ancillary sales and everything that he brings to the table. So it's it's... 
it's shocking that they let him go. So they must have some plan, but who knows what it is? Well, I, I think their next biggest star is probably Guy Fieri. But talk about someone who, you know, engenders a strong response on people. I mean, Guy yeah. Fieri, people either love him or they hate him. And I got to give Guy his props. That whole show he does, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, where he drives around, that show is essentially, we're here to help a small business show. Um, yes. And and it's great. Now, the whole spiky, white, white dyed, spiky hair kind of bombastic attitude thing, that rubs a lot of people the wrong way, and, and it, it can get tiresome. But he does great stuff for for you know the food community in his shows. But I I I'm just not sure if you have a network that is essentially Giada and Guy Fieri, is that going to still be the Food Network? I'm just not sure. See, I don't think it it can can do so with with Guy and Giada, and nothing against Guy, but he's very much uh, he's like the blue collar guy yeah. of Food Network, and Bobby brought that elevated craft to Food Network, and and then even working like I said earlier, he worked with kids with the the kids competition shows, yeah. and things like that. And it's not that Guy can't do it; it's just his his. He's a different character than Bobby Flay is, and it's not – he's one that you build the Guy Fieri empire around, but it's not a, a someone you would build an entire network around. Yeah, I'm going to be interested to see how that works. Um, when you look back at, at Bobby's shows, was there one that you were really a big fan of? I was a fan of uh, Beat Bobby Flay. I, I like the competition, you know, even uh, – even Iron Chef when he would compete on that. So I love the watching him compete with people and seeing people beat him, which was always interesting. That's it takes a lot of humility to go on and it's your show and you go out there and lose, which is not something that everyone would be willing to do. You want to you want to be the star. You want to be the best. And he was willing to be bested, which is something unique that he brings to wherever he lands up. That, that's a good point. Um, he doesn't have, at least on TV, he's not portrayed as having the massive ego that a lot of other chefs have. He, you're right. He is willing to lose. In fact, in that throwdown show, which was sort of the precursor to beat Bobby Flay, he would travel to chefs around the world uh, and, and do these competitions. And more often than not, he would lose. And he still did that show for, for several seasons and it became wildly popular and led to beat Bobby Flay where he, again, he loses from time to time. And in fact, on a, a, a decently consistent basis, he doesn't win and that's okay. He's, he's, he's very gracious about that. And I've heard him say before that, you know, it's not about necessarily him winning. It's about him showcasing those other people and that's not something that I think is always easy to find. No, it is definitely not. Uh, as you mentioned, chefs are known for their massive egos. You know, you look at Gordon Ramsay's whole, <laughs> right. you know, what he's built his career around. And uh, to go out there and to really care more about the food and bringing the food and the culture and technique and everything to people rather than just focusing on himself, that's a it's a unique skill and something I don't know that Flay gets 
as much credit for as he uh, deserves. Well, and you mentioned his his culinary pedigree. I mean, this is a guy who has multiple James Beard awards. Um, he was a graduate of the French Culinary Institute, which is a, a big deal. Um, in fact, he's been honored as like um, one of their you know greatest graduates ever sort of thing. Um, and he's someone who has a lot of respect uh, in the restaurant community. Again, I mean, he, I'm sure he hasn't been to all his restaurants on a regular basis because he has a lot of them now in Vegas and New York. And, and he's got a chain of these burger places, several, uh, several cities. Um, but he, I think he's a decently respected chef. Um, I, I'm just surprised that they couldn't come to an agreement with him to keep that train moving. Don't you think? That's it's amazing to me. Uh, you know, maybe that's why no one has tapped me to lead a, a broadcast network. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a huge amount of money. But I, again, you're going to recover that he brings that much to you. So you would want to keep your brand. Uh, and as we've seen with other things, you know, when there was the whole blow up with uh, Top Gear, when they had to uh, let go for of the host for a for wrong think, you know, the show just never was the same any, no, again. Never. And it's when you've built so much around this guy, even if you do want to part ways with him, it seems like it would have made more sense to have some sort of negotiated uh, handoff where it's like, okay, Bobby, we're not going to meet you here, but what if we do this? We'll give you X amount of money. You can kind of groom and prepare the audience for who's going to replace you rather than just have it be a clean break. That's a good point. That would have been a better way to do this. Say, hey, we're not going to give you $100 million in 10 years, but say we give you, you know, $10 million in two years and you sort of do a transition period where we can get the audience used to you not being there as often. Yes, because like you said, if you turn on Food Network, odds are you're going to see the guy. Yeah, no, like, no matter what time of day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Food Network has had other people that have come and gone and, and gone on to other things, but, and they've been okay. And, and to your point, uh, Emerald, you know, is gone, but it's just since 1994, this guy has been everywhere on this channel and all of a sudden he's just going to be gone. So it's an interesting it's an interesting time for Food Network, especially given how much more people have started cooking again during the pandemic. All of a sudden, people are at home. You're working from home. You can, you know, cook lunch instead of. And so I know that that's been a trend with people, you know, consuming more of this content as they integrate it into their lives. And it's just it, it seems an odd time to uh, stand firm and not give in to his demands. Also, and, and I think this is the last point I want to touch on before we move on, but if you think about uh, the sort of broader picture here, Food Network is part of the Discovery Package, which is a huge host of networks at this point, and, um, but it's a prime portion of Discovery Plus, which is their streaming service that they launched uh, last year, and it's one of those things where if you have that much if you have that many uh, shows as part of your package, which Bobby Flay does, Bobby Flay, if you look at Discovery Network or Discovery Plus, is a, a significant portion of that package, right? All his different shows that are on there. You'd think you'd want to keep that going because all of these uh, streaming services are essentially in a mad dash 
for as much content as they possibly can manage. And they want quality content constantly. If you look at Disney Plus, they're, I mean, tomorrow is a Disney Plus day. We're getting a whole day. Um, that's going to be uh, them announcing their stuff for the next uh, few months. And and uh, so they can get people, you know, continually interested and make sure that you stay subscribed to their uh, service. And if you're Discovery Plus, I would just think that the bosses there would think, man, this is a guy who just, he brings people in, he brings eyeballs in to our service. You think you wouldn't want to let that go. Exactly. We've reached a point where streaming has been around long enough that I'm sure we've all experienced it where, for example, to go to Disney Plus when it first launched, it's so exciting. You've got all this Marvel and this and that. But there kind of comes a point where it's it's like, okay, I've seen everything here that I want to see. And so to lose someone who can keep generating that new content quickly, it's again, it's it's an extremely odd decision to me. All right, Rich, and I want to talk about something a little different, uh, a little closer to home. Uh, we are going to talk scotch versus bourbon. Yes. And uh, <laughs> I want to say, in preparing for shows, this was the most fun topic to prepare for because it essentially meant I went to the liquor store, bought a bunch of stuff, came home, and drank it. And that is a wonderful way to spend an afternoon. Um let, let's sort of talk about this because bourbon has been going through a craze lately. Like people are going nuts over bourbon. It's difficult to find a lot of bourbons. I imagine everyone who's listening to this has been to the grocery store or the liquor store and they're like, man, I want Blanton's. I'd really love to get me a bottle of Blanton's right now. Nope. Good luck. Not happening. I mean, it, name your bourbon. It's probably difficult to come by right now. Thanks to, you know, the, Bear shelf Biden uh, uh, supply chain issues, but uh, and among other things. And if you look at scotch versus bourbon before we talk about some specific scotches and some specific bourbons, let's sort of talk about the difference between the two, because I think some people might be confused on that. But why don't you sort of break down for us the differences in scotch versus bourbon? There's legal differences in the two, uh, but there's also taste profile differences in the two. So why don't you sort of walk us through that first? So to begin with, the, the legal distinctions you mentioned, uh, scotch comes from Scotland. It's That's what it is. It's uh, spelled without an E, W-H-I-S-K-Y. Uh, there is, oh, I just forgot, I believe there's one that for whatever reason, one bourbon that is allowed to spell whiskey without an E. Uh, I believe it's a maker's mark or bullet, but I'll have to look that up. But so you've got the specific thing. It's like champagne. It has to be. And then you look at the terroir in uh, Scotland with the, the the peat and everything where the ingredients come from. So that's where you start to get the, the flavor profile differences, which uh, to s- – Go very ungenerous. Uh, people who dislike scotch will compare it to licking an ashtray because you do have that spice and that smokiness that comes with the production. Whereas on the flip side, bourbon, and to your point, the bourbon craze, there's just a, a billion different types of bourbon now, and some of them do veer closer in their flavor profile to scotch. But it's going to be more of that sweet uh, flavor where you get the caramel or maybe a little cinnamon and, and notes like that where it's they're both warming i mean it's it's whiskey it's going to be a warming beverage but with the bourbon uh to me the divide 
is more between sweet and savory. So I would uh, describe bourbon as the sweet whiskey and scotch as the more savory whiskey. Of course, once you get into specifics, all that could get blown up. But in general, if you're new to this, uh, that's a way to, to look at it. That's a good point because I think when you when you taste a bourbon, there is there does tend to be a sweeter component to it. Now, I, I'm not someone who is a trained bourbon connoisseur, but uh, I do like bourbon. I do like bourbon on on, a, on occasion. I, it's one of the things I continue to keep in my bar. Um, when you think of a bourbon, what? Because we'll start with those. What's the first thing that comes to mind? It's it's usually that those dark flavors, like uh, you know, dark brown sugar, caramel. That's really what I think of. And I, and there are a lot of bourbons that sh- uh, that veer away from that. But for me, that's what I go to bourbon for is that that warm, almost dessert like quality of a good bourbon in a uh, in a good glass. That's a good point. That's that's a good point. It does almost have a after meal dessert kind of quality to it. Yes. Although you can have it before a meal as well. You can have it or any a- time of the day. <laughs> <laughs> you can have it for breakfast. <laughs> okay, let's start off the bourbon category with one that I mentioned earlier. One that is hard to find these days, but if you have it in your liquor cabinet, it is one you are going to enjoy, and that's Blanton's. Talk about Blanton's. So Blanton's, this is a whole thing for me. So Blanton's was the first good bourbon that I was turned on to however many years ago. And at the time, it was before the bourbon craze had taken off, and you could just go buy it. And I was... You know, my wife and I were were of much more limited means at the time. Uh, So I would go buy this $65 bottle around Christmas every year. And and that would be my treat bourbon that I would sip on throughout the year. And so recently I've been looking and I wanted bourbon, some Blanton's. I ended up paying $100 on the secondary market for a fifth of this bourbon. And it's not $100 bourbon, but it's just it's it's classic. And if you look at bourbon forums and things like that, people will dunk on Blanton's. Oh, it's just Blanton's. Okay, well, if it's just Blanton's, how come you can't find it anywhere? <laughs> you know, everybody wants to, to talk trash about it, but it's still getting bought up. And it's it's not the, the – it's a delicious bourbon. It's got those flavors I was describing. It's got some heat to it, but it doesn't just overwhelm you. It, it you know, doesn't make you feel like you're breathing fire after you take a sip. And it, you can mix it with a, a classic cocktail. I would go an Old Fashioned or a Manhattan or something. I would not and Coke your bottle of Blanton's. No, not, you... not Blanton's, no. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's just got those that nice, warm, delicious, classic bourbon flavor. Okay, bourbon, Blanton's to me is the quintessential bourbon. It, you're right. It has that that sweeter sort of um, uh, caramel, almost, I don't know, butterscotch kind of uh, flavors to it. Uh, but it does have a little bit of heat. There's that little bit of that sort of spice to it, that, that cinnamon almost flavor that's there. Um, it, you know, it has a bit of, 
there's a bit of bite on your tongue. And I like that. I like that as, as someone who drinks bourbons. I like something that has a little bit of oomph to it. Um, and Blanton's to me is is perfect in that sense. It's a it's a great bourbon. Yeah. And I, I wish that people uh, who love to talk trash about it were serious so that I could just go buy it whenever I want it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're going to talk trash about it, stop buying it. Stop buying it so the rest of us can get, can get some. Um, okay, let's talk about another one. Uh, one of these others that you have in uh, your bar is a Woodford Reserve, which is a great brand. Uh, just about all their bourbons are great. The one you have right now that, that we were talking about the other day is uh, the double-oaked one. Tell me about that. So the double-oaked does get into kind of a different flavor profile. It's it's Woodford, so it's Light Blanton's is a, just a classic, great bourbon. Uh, another one that it's so available, people want to say, oh, it's just Woodford. The double oak is a little more difficult to find, and it's got that starting flavor of the, the caramel and butterscotch, but and it's got the heat, but because of the second oak barrel, you do get a little bit more of just actual oak flavor into it, which to me is interesting because you you normally think about flavors like that with scotch. So it's it's a closer to a scotch. It, I would not compare it. If someone were really wanting a scotch, I would not say, oh, just buy this instead. But if you do like that flavor profile and you're looking for something different, that second barrel does give you a little bit of that with a, the Woodford Double Oaks. Yeah, and, and I think what's interesting about these, these uh, and, and you see this in, in other bourbons as well, this sort of second um, oaking that they do, uh, the, instead of just sitting in one barrel its whole time, it will move to another barrel, and th- that barrel may have may have come from somewhere different. Um, it it may have been uh, charred differently, um, and so it's going to impart different flavors than uh, the first one did, which is why you get that sort of double oak thing. Uh, talk about talk about the sort of oak woody flavor that you get in these drinks, because that's something that is um, important in the, in understanding these. Well, a big thing, and it's easy to make fun of people who are into wine with the smelling, but your sense of smell is very important to your sense of taste. And for me, the, I used to have to chop a lot of firewood when I was growing up. And that, that smell of fresh, freshly cut wood, that's the oak flavor that I get when I'm drinking something like this Woodford Double Oaked, where it's, but it's pleasant, you know, it's, I don't miss chopping firewood, but that, (laughs) 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 but that, uh, you know, that smell does take me back and, and I really, uh, I do enjoy it. And it just, it adds a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of spice to it where it's just something different where it's like, Ooh, you know, there's a flavor that, that I'm not used to getting. And it, like I said, it really, you really do taste the wood and that's not a bad thing. Okay. Now let's move to scotch. There are a ton of scotches. Let's make that, let's make that clear. There are lots of scotches, lots of um, ways you can produce a scotch, but we highlighted two for the show uh, that are easy to obtain. You can you can go to your local liquor store, whether you're in Texas, Arkansas, Illinois, California, Virginia, and you can find these scotches. They are they are not difficult, and they are also 
a wonderful way to spend your afternoon, as I can attest to. Um, the first one we want to talk about is the Macallan 12. Uh, this is a great one to keep in your bar for uh, a nice night by the fireplace as we're getting into the cooler months. If you're going to do a, a fire pit outside with your with your family and you want a nice scotch, this is a good one, right? Yes. So uh, scotch was actually what introduced me to the world of whiskey. I was waiting tables and a, a Scotsman came into the Ruth's Chris in Nashville where I was working to do a tasting with the staff of the McAllen. And the McAllen is not the peatiest. Uh, you know, for people who really love the peat and that smoke, they're going to go for a Lafrague or something like that. The McAllen in uh, tasting, I'd gotten away from scotch for a while. I'd gone all in on bourbon. So this was the first time I had drank scotch in a while. And it does veer a little closer. It, it has that little bit of a softer uh, flavor to it where the peat doesn't just overwhelm you. But it's definitely not bourbon. Uh, it it doesn't feel as thick uh, when you drink it. And not that bourbon feels thick in a bad way. It just feels more substantial, whereas to me the scotch is uh, – it seems thinner, but it's uh, it's delicious. It's warming. I had kind of forgotten when I first uh, started discussing Scotch versus bourbon. I had intended to just troll and to upset Scotch lovers, but then <laughs> I, <laughs> I drank these two that we selected. It's like you know, I'm I'm glad I have these in my bar now. You know, I'd kind of forgotten how much I can enjoy these different things. That's a good. <laughs> that's, it's always fun trolling people. That's fine. Uh, although I think that's now illegal in uh, England. Then um, you can go to jail yes. for that. Um, yeah. Talk about the sort of the the difference in taste from a Scotch to some of these bourbons we had earlier. If you had two glasses, you had say a glass of the Blantons and a glass of the McCallans on a table. How would you tell the difference between the two? The you know, there, there's a little bit of difference in the color. You start there looking at it. The Blanton's is a little bit darker. Uh, not a lot, but just a little. And uh, then uh, the smell. With the scotch, again, I know I keep saying peat, but it's such a component of it. You're going to get more of that that spice, that heat on the nose when you smell the scotch before you go in for the taste. And then it's... There's a little bit more complexity, I would say, to the scotch, even though I came in a troll. Again, Blanton's is delicious. That's if I had to pick one thing, like I can only have one liquor for the rest of my life. That's probably what I would pick. But it's 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 very soothing. But the scotch, it hits more parts of your tongue, in my opinion. It's you get that introductory uh warm, almost sweet flavor, but then it opens up as it moves back and hits more of the spice and the heat. And it's a good heat. It's again, not, oh, I need to take a sip of water now, but it is, you're drinking whiskey. You know, you, you want it to taste like whiskey. Okay. That brings up, that brings up a good, that brings up a good point here. What is the way you prefer to drink one of these? Because there's a whole debate on this. Do you drink it with ice? Do you drink it without ice? Do you drink it with a splash of water? Do you like it a little cool? Do you like it room temperature? Um, I, if I'm drinking a, a fine scotch or a fine whiskey of any variety, really, I like a, just a little dash of cold water in it. Um, how do you like to take it? I 
am all over the place for the for our tasting <laughs> i i did exactly that i did a, a splash of cool filtered water i keep a, a a brita tank that i refresh uh in my bar fridge for such purposes uh and in my glen cairn but you know if it's a, a hot summer day and i'm not looking to taste uh do a, a tasting session i might do over on the rocks or maybe even with a splash of club soda uh maybe even yeah, a mixed like drink yeah um but if i'm really tasting i like to do just a splash of cool water and just you know slowly sip do small pours uh and and just you know take a couple of sips you get that first sip that's an important thing when you start taking uh getting into whiskey whether it's scotch or bourbon you have your first sip and that's going to be enjoyable. But as you sip along, the flavor opens up more. It's, as you get more prepared for it, I guess, you start to, okay, that's when you start to taste more and more of these flavors. And as a former waiter, I think that some of it is nonsense when you start getting into, oh, this uh, this tastes like, you know, black currants and uh, old leather. And it's like, so do you regularly eat black currants and old leather? Why are these flavors that... <laughs> are you sitting on your couch at home? What's going on here? <laughs> so, uh, but you do, uh, you do start to get those flavors and it's a even though it kind of sounds ridiculous, it's a very personal thing. And, and you, you get, you know, citrus or grapefruit and it's a wonderful thing once you start getting into it, but you do sound kind of pompous when you talk about it. Okay. Let's wrap up scotches. Why talking about the, uh, Balvany double wood. This is, uh, again, something you can find, uh, pretty easily at your liquor store, but this is, this was my favorite of all the ones that we tried. Um, I actually have a bottle of this <laughs> set aside um, here uh, at my house for our uh, boss and mutual friend, uh, Ben Dominich, um, who had it when he was in town and couldn't take it on the plane because, you know, you can't take a giant bottle of uh, scotch back with you. So uh, no. I've been holding on to it for every time he visits uh, and we've been sipping through it. This this is one of my favorites. <laughs> So I, I just mentioned that I got my start in a scotch with the Macallan, and that I did drink around different. This Balvini double wood is just, it's fantastic. It, it's got so much flavor to it. It's a nice, mellow, sit down and relax pour. Uh, you get all the flavors of the, 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 the two casks and the sweetness, the the heat, the spice, it's it's just it was fantastic, and I think I paid forty four dollars for this, so it's not nothing, but it in the world of liquor, that's a very reasonable reasonable price. Absolutely. So that was for me. This was the the big hit of everything too. Even though I said that Blanton's would be my thing, this, the Balvini really kind of reignited my interest in scotch. It was like, you know, this is fantastic. I had kind of gotten away and, and had tasted some of the other like hardcore peaty ones. That's not my personal taste and forgotten how excellent scotch like that could be for me. Now, if you love the peat, go drink the peat. So the lesson here, boys and girls is it's easy to enjoy either a scotch or a bourbon, just go go buy yourself some, sit down with a few of them on a glass on a Tuesday afternoon and, and just <laughs> make your day. 
And that, and don't get caught up in the chase, right. uh, not to go too long, but you know, uh, Maker's Mark and things like, these are fine bourbons, you know, just go buy something and don't get caught up in the, uh, oh, I'm going to find this, you know, I'm going to pay a thousand dollars for this, whatever from this. No, it's, it's all delicious. If you'd like to advertise on future episodes of Coffee and Koshan, please contact us at coffeeandkoshan at gmail.com. about uh, alternative milks. This is something that uh, is uh, just, uh, tends to be a hot topic. Uh, yes. Tends to be something that excites people one way or the other. Let me tell a story before we get too far into this. My uh, daughter, uh, when she was born, she had a terrible milk allergy, which we found out the wrong way um, <laughs> by, by feeding her milk and watching her go exorcist style all over her room. Um, And so uh, for the first time ever in my life, I became an alternate milk purchaser. And she grew up for the first several years of her life before she shed that allergy uh, on coconut milk. And it was something we always had in our fridge. And I found out how just expensive some of this alternate milk thing can be. Um, in general, I am not a fan of these milks. I will use coconut milk when I make, um, and generally it's the coconut milk in the can when I make Indian food, uh, and it calls for that. But, uh, I, I'm a milk guy. I drank, I drank tons of milk growing up. I was one of those, like we were one of those families that always had a, a jug or two of milk in the fridge that we were just going through on a regular basis. We drank a lot of milk growing up. Um, and I like milk. I like real milk. I, I, I also don't generally like that. These alternate milks get this sort of, you know, yay Mother Earth thing going on. But if you look, if you look at this, if you look at almond milk in particular, it takes a lot of water to make a little bit of almond milk. And um, that's something that that the the greenies never really talk about. But that's substantial. I mean, there's there's something to that. If you're going to produce something like this, you have to figure out what goes into it. And um, if you're going to claim that it's, you know, healthy for the earth and everything, but then you drill down and it maybe is not as healthy as everybody says it is, well, th- you know, that, that kind of bothers me a little bit. Now, um, you are someone who uses these milks, I think, much more than I do. Now that my daughter has gotten rid of her milk allergy, thank God, um, we don't really keep a lot of this stuff in the house. Um, I- I'm actually not really a fan of calling them milk uh, as a former congressional staffer, uh, I would almost be willing to find a law that could say they weren't milk, but that's just the uh, that's just the policymaker in me. Um, talk to me, Rich, about how you use these milks because I think you're a good example of someone who has found reasons to use them in your daily life. So. Uh... It's funny. We didn't discuss this ahead of time, but the way I got into the alt milks was the exact same way as you. Our middle daughter 
had this terrible milk allergy when she was a newborn. And, uh, you know, you get into all this special formula, this weighted formula. But so as she grew, uh, for her, it was chocolate almond milk that she loved. And so that's how we started using some of these alt milks in our house. And so she, as with your daughter, she shed that allergy. I would also describe it as an exorcist. You know, when I would go to work oh, in the man, morning, I would hug her and then I would go get dressed yes. and then not touch her again before I left. Yes. So, uh, f- flash forward to now and th- what has pushed me sort of back into these alternative milks is I don't know if I have a mild lactose intolerance that I've developed myself or what, but when, I love whole milk. I don't want 2%. I definitely don't want skim. I want whole milk, but it makes me feel very bloated. And I like smoothies. I like ice cream and I like those things. And so I found that if I use it, you know, an oat milk or a almond milk or whatever, you know, because if I'm going to do it, I want it to be as worse than cow farts. I, uh, <laughs> I uh, make smoothies or, uh, you know, protein shakes or things like that, and I will use those alternative milks, and it gives it more cream, more flavor, even though those milks themselves do not have the same consistency as as true milk. So I get your your staffer uh, impulse to call them something else because it, it's not, and uh, – and I can use, drink those, and I do get a little bit more of the, the creamy texture and things like that, and it doesn't aggravate. It doesn't make me feel bloated. Uh, same, there was uh, recently I had to take a medication, and I couldn't have any dairy, any calcium within a large number of hours around taking this medicine. And, you know, at night, you want a little treat. So I discovered a cashew milk, a salted caramel cashew milk ice cream that – you really can't tell the difference once you get it. And and so that's where I think that they can serve a purpose is things like that. Now, if if I were making potato soup or any sort of cream dish or anything like I'm using milk, I'm using heavy cream. I don't think that whether it's for the planet or whatever your reason is, no, it's just like – you know, I've tried the Impossible Burger. It's okay. I would rather have beef. And uh, but there are times if I'm going to drink, uh, have a vegetarian meal, I'll just have a vegetarian meal. And I think that the alternative milks, in an ideal world, that's the same thing. You want them for that, but they aren't an actual substitute for milk. And the the hippies need to stop claiming that they are, you know, they, they, they just go too far. And I think that's why this has turned into such a debate. It's not just like, Hey, I've made this beverage that you may enjoy. It's I've made this beverage and you need to change your way of life and make this the sole thing that you consume when you consume milk. And you can't see me doing air quotes right now, but I am. Oh, I love the, uh, Oh, I love the radio air quotes. I've been a fan of those for decades. (laughs) Um, uh, let me ask you this. You sort of touched on this, but um, the alternative milk thing, whether it's uh, almond milk, soy milk, oat milk, if you go to a coffee shop today, particularly if you go to a Starbucks today, those milks are are very prevalent on the menu in drinks, and um, 
pre-pandemic when you put your own milk in your in your coffee at those places, um, a lot of what you saw on that counter was alternative milks. It was almond milk. It was uh, soy milk and not necessarily just whole milk or uh, whole cream. Um, why is it that these alternate milks are so popular, you think? So I think that there's this, the, the, you know, PETA and these different organizations have done such a good job of cementing in people's minds that plants equals good and animal equals bad. And I, I don't think people really look into the issues, as you said, the water consumption necessary to grow almonds. Uh, and they don't think about the fact that we need protein. You know, the food pyramid is the last iteration I looked at. It was still just so carb heavy. And no, we don't need all those carbs. And but people don't realize that they just think, oh, rice, rice is good. I'll have rice. And I think that that's where the trend has come from is it's not so much a conscious thing where people are going and doing the research and saying, yes, this is the nutrition I need for my body, but instead just kind of going with the flow, which is also how we ended up with people requesting lattes made with skim milk. When anyone who's ever made a latte will tell you the, the milk doesn't foam right if it's not really cold whole milk. It, there has to be fat to it. That's the whole point. Yes. Well, and, and the other thing is I saw, I saw a commercial just yesterday um, for pea milk made from peas. Yeah, that's a, a new pea one. Protein milk. I, 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 okay. First of all, I didn't know that was a thing. Secondly, what you must have to go through to take a green pea that you grow in a field in Iowa and turn it into milk. That process has got to be crazy. I mean, it's yeah. not just it's not just like it comes from the animal into your glass. It, it has to go through just this amazing transformation to become milk. And that, that's what doesn't necessarily make it milk. Yes. And I wonder if some of the supply chain issues we're seeing are leading to alternate, alternate milks and proteins. Uh, there's a, a tropical smoothie right by our house. And I had recently had reason to drink a lot of smoothies. And one of the ones I would sometimes get, it came with your choice of protein. And when I first started going, it was, you've got whey protein, hemp protein, uh, there were five or six different choices and they've since reduced it down to you can either have whey or pea protein. And so I have to think that what? this wasn't just a, a choice that somebody was like, yes, pea protein is what people want. I'm guessing maybe peas are easier to grow or something to, uh, to, and again, maybe this is supply chain related has led to this. I, I cause to your point, who was just sitting around and saying, you know what? There aren't enough options out there. I'm going to do something with a pea. Yeah, because again, it's it's bizarre. It's it's peas. It's it's a vegetable that is is grown in a giant field that's green, no less. And I imagine I haven't seen pea milk in person, but I imagine pea protein milk is not green. Um, I'm I'm going to guess. Um, but all right. So I I, I guess there is a place for these but perhaps we shouldn't necessarily call them milk. Yes. 
And, you know, I'm not a congressional staffer, but I live in Arkansas. So uh, cauliflower rice has been a big deal here because we produce a lot of rice in Arkansas. So (laughs) the the, the growers do not like that designation. Again, it looks nothing like rice. It's just chopped up cauliflower. Yes. And and the marketing department said, let's call this cauliflower rice. But it's it's not rice. It is just chopped up cauliflower. Now, to be clear, I actually like riced cauliflower or chopped up cauliflower. I like cauliflower in general, really. Um, in fact, I had it for, for lunch yesterday. I do this great uh, cauliflower dish where I uh, do it in the oven at 500, uh, covered uh, with uh, chopped up bacon and onions and uh, or shallots, if I can get shallots, um, and uh, some Worcestershire and uh, some spices and you, and you put it in the oven or, or on the grill um, in sort of big chunks. And, and that's actually a, a pretty damn good meal. Um, but again, cauliflower, chopped up cauliflower is not rice. Just because marketing department says it looks like rice does not necessarily make it rice. Same thing with this milks. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, last segment. Uh, let's talk about uh, gifts for the beer lover. It is that time of year. I will be honest, I generally don't do my Christmas shopping until a few weeks before Christmas, but living in this world where all of our stuff is stuck on a uh, ship off the coast of L.A. and Long Beach, uh, this is a year where you have to sort of plan a little further ahead than usual. Oh, Um, yes. And uh, I wrote a piece recently at The Federalist uh, that we'll link in the show notes. Um, If you have a beer lover in your life, and if you're listening to a show about food and drinks. Uh, I imagine you might. Um, I have a handful of suggestions here on uh, things you might like to get that beer lover for Christmas. Um, the first one is one that I actually have sitting here on my desk as we record this show, and that is the Yeti can cooler. And not only is this thing good for cooling your beer, but actually I have it cooling a, a uh, can of sparkling water, which is always good to have next to you when you're uh, recording a show. Um, I, this, this can cooler never leaves my side. I, I travel with this thing. Uh, it's in my car. It's on my desk. It's in the backyard. If I'm back there, like I I constantly have this thing cooling something. Um, this is such a useful thing for you to have. And if you have a, a beer lover in your life or a drink lover in general, uh, who drinks out of a can, there are both regular size can coolers and there are tall boy can coolers that that's, uh, more your speed. Um, Yeti makes a, a whole host of cooling, uh, things, but, uh, this is, and it's more than just a, you know, like a foam looking sock thing you put on your can. This is a, a metal, uh, essentially a cooler shaped around a can. It's, it's a lot more sturdy than that. This is something that, that, uh, I love. Do you have one of these? I do not have the can cooler and I was sitting here thinking that I should get one and I did read your piece, but, uh, I've got just a Yeti thermos that I drink water out of that Which I've been using great. yeah for like eight years and the handle on it just broke and it's like you know the, these are a little pricier than an average cooler or thermos but then again they last forever so that's it's something that I, I people should listen to you and buy these I will say uh Yeti is actually headquartered here in Austin about five minutes from my house um they're right down the road people here get really uh really uh, addicted to yetis and and they become yeti evangelists and they'll have like yeti bumper stickers on their cars and 
and they'll have like those $400 coolers all over their house. And, and, and to be clear, I don't have one of those giant, super expensive Yeti coolers because frankly, those are really overpriced, but yes. these can coolers are perfect. And yes, and they're, they're not expensive. Uh, they're like 25 bucks a pop and you will, you, you will always use this. You'll totally get your use out of it. Another thing that I, I want to suggest for people, um, if you have someone in your life who loves going to breweries on the weekend and getting uh, special beers, you can only get there something like a cooler sling. And these are essentially duffel bag coolers, something like that. And, and uh, Pelican makes a really good one uh, that I have. Um, is perfect for you because you can you can wear it over your shoulder uh, like like a duffel bag like you're taking it to the gym but it can fit uh, a couple six packs worth of special release beer that you can get at these at these breweries I, I'm a brewery hound I have a friend who owns a brewery um, so I, I'm going to these places on a regular basis I love getting these sort of beers you can only get you know well, we're releasing a special beer this Saturday at the brewery from 12 to 2 blah 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 yes uh, this is the gift for your friends if they love to do that like I do. Because you can get this uh, cooler that you can put on your shoulder, grab all that stuff, bring it back, throw it in your beer fridge, and it stays cool the whole time. Yes, which for uh, anyone out there listening who's shopping uh, but who is not himself a beer lover, it is very important to keep your beer cold. Absolutely. Uh, that is where you lose so much flavor, even if it just gets hot for uh, you know, an hour. No, you want to keep your beer cold, particularly if the beer lover in your life is into all the, the trendiest beer there is right now. IPA, the IPAs, the, the whole story behind you added all these hops for shipping. The flavor on those is very unstable. Yes. And, and this is the way to keep that beer cool, easily accessible and um, easy to take with you. Another thing that's great to have, again, if you're doing, um, uh, crawls at breweries or if you have a, a bar near you that has a beer on tap that's only on tap that you want to take home get your beer lover a growler I can't tell you how easy these are to uh, take to places and say hey I'd like to buy a growler worth of that great beer I had on tap the other day um, can you do that for me and bars are willing to do that for you I mean you have to pay for it obviously you have to pay to fill the growler it's it's worth a few beers but then it stays again cold because it's double walled, it has a great cap. Sometimes you can get these caps that have, uh, it's like a keg cap that has like a little uh, a spout on it um, and some carbonation that keeps it, that helps keep it carbonated. And you just keep this thing in your fridge and you can get essentially beer to go, whether that's from a, a brewery, a restaurant, a bar. There was a great coffee shop uh, pre-pandemic that used to be near my house. And we would have these beer club meetings on a regular basis and at the end of the night, a, a lot of that stuff would be only tap available beer. I'd say, okay, here's my growler. I want it filled with, you know, X beer that we had tonight that I really loved that I can't get in cans or, or, or bottles. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, a tap-only beer. That way you can take that beer home. This is something that's just a, a really easy buy. And they're totally affordable. You can go from, from a, a, a really cheap, uh, basic uh, glass one, glass growler, to something really complex. If you have a, a beer lover in your life who's really into this stuff, you know, splurge and get them a nice one with the, the keg cap and everything. This is just an easy buy. Yes. Uh, another suggestion that you had in your article that uh, I'd like to hear you expound upon, 
you encourage people to up their glassware game. You know, we all probably started out at that point with our first apartment or whatever where we had the the mug, the mug that was prevalent back when Absolutely. that every brew pub had. You suggest moving beyond that. Okay, so that's that's a really good point. Several uh, different beers require different glasses. And and we talked about this earlier sort of with the scotch and bourbon debate. If you just want to sit down and have a beer with your buddies, um, don't worry about it. Drink it out of the can, drink it out of the bottle, no big deal. But if you want to sit and really sample a beer, sort of get all the the nose in it, get all the different tastes from it, you got to do it out of the right glass. And and I'm glad you brought that up because uh, there is there is a way to do this, uh, and it's really easy. Actually, there are uh, glass a whole. Uh, you can get these glass packs that have an IPA glass, that have a stout glass, that have everything you need, and they're actually relatively cheap. You can get them on Amazon. You can get them at um, you can get them at a local liquor store. You can get them at Williams Sonoma, Crate and Barrel, any of those kind of stores. You'll see these, and and I would suggest when you get these glasses, do not put them in your dishwasher. Please hand hand wash them. It will last much longer. Um, but uh, if you drink an IPA out of an IPA glass, it really changes things. Yes. Yeah, I would agree. I'm a crate and barrel guy. I have a, the, uh, I've broken many of the Bruges glass. They're, they're nice tulip because uh, they're that fragile. They are so fragile. I, I had to. I have a separate, I have my own bar now in our house. So it's only got a sink. I don't have a dishwasher up here, so I have to hand wash. So that's handy. But then the, the nonic pint, nonic half pint, you can get all these different classes that are to your point, very affordable. And it just, it's a different experience. And sometimes maybe if you're doing splits with a buddy, if you're trying to sample a couple yes. of different beers, you, you don't want to have a giant, pint glass when you're only drinking six ounces or whatever. So it's glassware is important. All right. I want to go out on this. If you uh, have a beer lover in your life who likes to read, (laughs) there are an infinite amount of books on this subject. However, I will point you to two that um, I actually keep on my shelf. These are books that I have read that uh, one of them is one I refer to on a regular basis when I write these articles at Federalist. Um, uh, the first one is called Hops and Glory. It's a book by Pete Brown. It's sort of the story of the IPA, which has, and we, you sort of touched on this a minute ago, but the IPA has a great story, how they would brew this beer, send it from England to India, which is how it's got the, the uh, India Pale Ale name. Um, it would live on a ship and sort of gain all these characteristics and everything. Um, this book sort of explores all that. It's, it's half travel book, half adventure um, it's a lot of fun. If you have a beer lover in your life, this is one that, that they'll in, just genuinely enjoy reading. The other one is called The Complete Beer Course, and it sort of walks you through how to learn about beer, how to uh, understand the differences in in ales and lagers and, and porters and stouts and all these sort of things. And it's actually kind of fun because it teaches you this through tasting courses, which it lays out in the book. So it encourages you to go buy beer and drink it out of that nice new glass that you purchased um, and learn about the flavor of the beer and and what comes from each beer, all the, the different characteristics of each beer. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's something I totally suggest. Yes, those are great suggestions. And, uh, you know, it, we're still living at home a lot. So it uh, gives us things to do at home as we uh, 
we can we can take a trip with our taste buds rather than the traditional way. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> a trip with our taste buds that we can do at home. Uh, well, thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. This is our new show, Coffee and Koshan. Uh, I'm Brad Jackson. This has been uh, Rich Crumble with me. And this is a show that you're going to find every week on uh, several places. You can get it on iTunes. Uh, you can get it at thefederalist.com uh, and uh, other services as well. If you like this show, please subscribe to it. Listen to it. You can send us an email at coffeeandkoshan at gmail.com if you have some comments uh, or some questions. We'd be happy to take care of those. And, uh, Rich, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, thank you, Brad. Thank you.